We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Ecclesiastes chapter 9, verse 13. These are the words of God. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came up against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise are heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Chapter 10, verse 1. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment to give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but the fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of, a, of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and, he, and, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy, happy are you, O land, when your king is a son of nobility. And your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through idolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell of the matter. Now this week as I... Uh, I, wrote, I wrote this sermon earlier this week, and I feel like after that, it kept coming up throughout my week and ruining my days and bringing me low uh, in a, in a God-glorifying way, hopefully. So I'd like to ask for, for the Lord's help for all of us here, because I think by the end, we will all be uh, pretty well flattened and uh, humbled. So let's, let's go ahead and pray that God would help us to receive this with humility. Oh, Triune God, we need you this morning. Please feed us with your word. 
speak through your servant now and minister to your church accordingly so that seed sown in weakness may be raised in power. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In the strong name of Jesus we pray, amen. Well, the thesis of this whole passage is found in chapter 9, verse 17. So go ahead and look there with me one more time. This is the thesis of this passage. It's simply, it's, it's pretty simple and straightforward. It says, the words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So Solomon wants to commend wisdom in this passage. He holds it up as a prize that we could receive. And it's the best prize that we could ever receive. Wisdom, according to Solomon here, is a priceless treasure and we should prefer it, we should prefer wisdom to strength or vainglory or acclaim or influence or anything else. Now the question is, what kind of wisdom does Solomon commend here? Because he's talked about wisdom all throughout this book and sometimes it doesn't sound like it's something that he's commending highly. So what kind of wisdom is Solomon commending here? Well, we know it's not the kind of wisdom that he mentions in chapter 1 of this book. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 16, where he writes, I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom. So there's that word. He uses that word. I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me. And my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceived that this also is but striving after wind. So that kind of wisdom he doesn't commend as, as anything worthwhile. Now remember, all throughout this book, Solomon is taking up various perspectives. From one perspective, he views everything under the sun, he views everything under the sun as if that which is under the sun is all there is. That's, how he, that's one of the perspectives he takes up. And from that perspective... Wisdom is only as good as what it can provide for you by way of earthly, under-the-sun fulfillment, which is not a lot. So he says that kind of wisdom, from that perspective, wisdom is worthless. It's all passing away and fleeting. If all that exists is that which is under the sun, then the increase of wisdom simply amounts to the increase of reasons for despair. In fact, even the temporary acclaim of being considered a wise person, you know, that reputation that you get of becoming a wise person, even that doesn't count for much because that acclaim will fade away, you will die, and be forgotten. So it doesn't matter. From that perspective, wisdom doesn't count for much. But that's not the perspective that Solomon takes up here in our passage today. Here, he views wisdom rightly in relation to the God who lives above the sun. From that perspective, the perspective that views wisdom not as a means of temporary fulfillment under the sun, but rather as a gift given by the God who is above the sun, from that perspective, wisdom is a treasure that is surpassing every form of earthly praise or strength. And we know that that's the perspective that Solomon takes up here, because he pairs this kind of wisdom with a kind of 
lowliness and humility that is totally inconsistent with that other view of wisdom. The other view of wisdom considers wisdom a means of earthly fulfillment and recognition and power. But this view of wisdom considers it a treasure worth pursuing even to the neglect of earthly recognition and power. Notice this very contrast that he highlights in chapter 10, verse 5. Go ahead and skip down and look at that verse with me. Chapter 10, verse 5. He says, There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. The kind of wisdom that Solomon commends here in this passage is counterintuitive. It cannot be identified by mere external circumstances. From this heavenly perspective, wisdom is not sequestered out and made unavailable to the poor and lowly, nor is folly missing from the highest echelons of society. Wherever there are people, there is both heavenly wisdom and there is folly. You will find folly in a group of PhDs and you will find wisdom in a group of homeless people. Wisdom is no respecter of external circumstances from this heavenly perspective. The kind of wisdom that he's talking about here in this passage is of heavenly origin. The kind whose beginning is the fear of the Lord. The kind the world views as folly and weakness, but is nevertheless wisdom and strength according to God. This is a Pauline kind of wisdom that flips everything on, his, on its head. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. So this is a heavenly wisdom that, that Solomon is commending here, the kind of wisdom that doesn't let you boast in the presence of God because it begins with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So that's what he's commending. And now Solomon commends this kind of wisdom with an illustrative story. So he begins in chapter 9, verse 13. Go back up to that verse and let's read this with me. He says, I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works against it. But there was found in it a poor wise man, and he by his wisdom delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man, but I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised, and his words are not heard. So here Solomon tells us a story of a great demonstration of wisdom, and in doing so, in telling this kind of story, and then calling it great, he turns the under-the-sun perspective on its head. Because ordinarily, this story would be considered a tragedy. Now there's not a lot of details in this story. We don't know if it's real or fictional, uh, we don't know who the, the poor man is. We, we don't know how he saved the city. So there's a lot of things that we don't know from this story. But the details that are clear in this story are very striking. So for one, the deliverance is incredible. 
It was a small city delivered out of the hand of a great king. No one saw it coming. The second detail is really important as well. It's that the hero is an unlikely hero. He was a poor and mostly, most likely uninfluential man. He wasn't a sought-after counselor. No one was looking for wisdom for, for deliverance of the city to come from this guy. And the third and most important detail of all is that he receives no earthly reward for his wisdom. No one remembered him. And so from a worldly perspective, from an under-the-sun, strictly under-the-sun perspective, this is a tragedy and a waste. But according to Solomon, this is an example of wisdom that is truly great. It seemed great to me, Solomon says. And in this way, we see that one of the key distinctions between worldly wisdom and heavenly wisdom comes down to this central concept, pride versus Humility. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You cannot be prideful and also fear the Lord at the same time. Pride versus humility. This is a key concept. The one who worships the Lord does not worship the praise of others. He doesn't worship the strength of arms or the prestige of wisdom or wealth or pleasure. The one who fears the Lord isn't frantically acting out of a reactionary and prideful sense of self-advancement or self-protection. The one who fears the Lord is content with being forgotten by men so long as he is remembered by God. So keep this distinction of pride versus humility in mind as we read on. I think it will illuminate this text for us as Solomon instructs us on divine wisdom. And so with Solomon's thesis stated, wisdom is better than anything else, including weapons or strength or prestige or anything else. So with his thesis stated and illustrated, he now unfolds divine wisdom for us in very practical terms. So now he's dispensing wisdom to us. And like so many other portions of wisdom literature in the scriptures, Solomon commends wisdom by contrasting it with its opposite, folly. So let's, let's let him teach us. Chapter 10, verse 1. He says, Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment, give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. The big idea here is that folly destroys good things. A little folly destroys good things. A great thing, a great plan, group, or meal, or party, or business venture. Great things can be destroyed with just a little bit of folly. Folly, in other words, punches above its weight. What wisdom builds up in years, folly can destroy in mere seconds. Verse 2, a wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. The basic concept here is that wisdom is more than mere actions. Wisdom and folly are not merely found in the things that we do and say, but rather in the very inclinations of our hearts. Now, this means that the problem of folly goes deeper than our external circumstances. And the pursuit of wisdom is far greater project than mastering certain behaviors. Now, this doesn't mean that our words or actions are unimportant. It simply means that the truly wise person is the one whose whole life, interior and exterior, is continually transformed into Christ-likeness. What we want is not simply to say and do particularly wise things. 
but rather to become wise persons, to be actually transformed. More on that later. Verse 3, even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. (laughs) This verse simply says that folly is conspicuous. It shows itself. It shouts out to itself, hey, folly is located here. And this is the way that it shows itself. It ruins everything, even the simplest of tasks, like walking down a road. Solomon's saying, even a fool can't walk down a road without telling everyone that he's a fool. Verse four, if the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Now notice the clear contrast here. Folly is reckless and reactionary. Folly is impulsive and explosive. But wisdom is patient and calm and self-controlled. What we're talking about here is not a personality type, but rather a virtue. And what becomes clear very quickly is that the wisdom Solomon commends here bears striking resemblance to the fruit of the Spirit that Paul lists in Galatians 5, right? You know the fruit of the Spirit. It's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. In other words, to become a wise person is to become godly. Biblical wisdom is simply biblical godliness. Verse 8, he who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by him by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, there is no advantage to the charmer. Now here Solomon paints a vivid picture of the self-destructive nature of folly. That's what he's trying to demonstrate for us, how folly is self-destructive. So picture the stubborn and prideful man who despises instruction and recklessly acts to his own hurt. Picture the guy who digs a pit and carelessly falls into it himself. This is a favorite illustration, by the way, of Solomon and David in the Psalms and in the Proverbs. The person who digs a pit and then falls into it himself. Picture the guy who's doing demolition work on a snake-infested wall, heedless of the words of caution given by its owner. Hey, be careful, there are snakes in there. The guy just bulldozes through and gets bit. Picture the guy who recklessly quarries stones and splits logs without using proper protection or protocol. Picture the guy who's working away with all his might, trying to cut down a tree with a dull axe, pridefully unwilling to heed the counsel of another who is instructing him to just sharpen the blade first. It will make your work so much easier. But he can't be bothered with the counsel of others because he's so pridefully self-assured that he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. And he does all of this to his own detriment. We can certainly think of other examples. And one example that used to have a lot of cash value was the one who, the, the husband who, Refuse to ask for directions, right? But GPS and and smartphones have kind of made that illustration go away. But the issue is still there, right? It doesn't matter how how much our our, uh, technology advances because the issue is still there. How many relational bridges have been burned because men and women are too pridefully stubborn to humble themselves and apologize? Verse 9, 
Think of the husband who refuses to call the electrician because he's so confident that he can fix the problem himself. Think of the wife who stubbornly refuses to heed the counsel of her husband on how to discipline the kids because she's so confident that she knows what to do. Think of the child who refuses to listen to his mom when she's trying to show him how to tie his shoe and then he tries to do it himself and then he trips over himself a second later. Or, or, or actually the one that has a lot more value. Think of the, the child who refuses to brush his teeth and then gets a cavity, right? The thing that we're talking about here, the thing that we must recognize is that this kind of stubborn pride is not a personality quirk. You can't just say, oh, it's just this person's personality. It's not a personality quirk. It is folly. It is sinful folly. And parents, just as an aside, let me remind you that your job as a parent involves discipling and disciplining the folly out of your child. Your child is born foolish and subsequently made wise. Okay, nobody is born wise. We're all born fools and we're made wise. Your two-year-old's inability to say sorry or its equivalent, whatever, whatever your two-year-old's version of sorry is, your two-year-old's inability to say sorry or its equivalent is, and his inability to practice self-control may not seem so bad right now. But think about what that sin will look like when he's a 32-year-old. It can wreck a home and destroy lives. The Puritan, the Puritan pastor Ralph Venning was right when he said sin grows up faster than men do. Sin grows up faster than men do. They are old and sin when still young in years. Now, this is not to say that you should expect perfection from your kids, of course, but you have to recognize that we are all born foolish, your children included, and are subsequently made wise. We are progressively shaped by wisdom, and it does not come automatically. It's not just natural. It's very unnatural in the sense that it's going against our sin nature to become wise. The rod of discipline that drives folly out of the heart of your child is both corrective and instructional. It's instructional in the sense that you should be demonstrating it for them, right? As you strive towards wisdom, you must invite them to strive together with you. You can't ask them to do what you're not demonstrating for them, what you won't model for them. So you show them what wisdom looks like. And then you show them what repentance looks like when you stray from wisdom and then you lovingly correct them when they stray from wisdom. So verse 8 through 11 illustrate for us the self-destructive tendency of folly. Prideful, stubborn foolishness is ultimately self-destructive. It hurts ourselves. And all the illustrations that Solomon gives for us in that, those couple of verses are foolish actions. He's showing for us what uh, folly does, uh, if we're acting folly, how it destroys us. So he uses the examples of being reckless with snakes and stones and logs and using blunt axes. But now Solomon shows us this exact same principle, except he applies it to our speech. So folly is self-destructive, not only with our self-destructive actions, but also with our speech. Verse 12, he says, The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be. And who can tell him what will be after him? 
The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. This verse calls to mind that thesis verse we read back in chapter 9, verse 17. The words of the wise heard in quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Words spoken from wisdom are a precious thing. Verse 12 is sometimes translated, the wise man's words are gracious. In our ESV translation, it says the, the, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor. And so it's not entirely clear grammatically if the point is that the words are a grace to others, the wise man's words are gracious to others, or if the words are a grace to himself, they win him favor. But I actually think it's both, which is consistent with other passages we find in scriptures. So Ephesians 4, for example talks about putting away corrupt speech and letting our speech instead build one another up in such a way that edification goes around, right? So as we are gracious with our speech towards others, it is actually a grace to ourselves. In the Parkinson home, we've been talking a lot about being bucket fillers and not bucket dumpers. Everyone's got a bucket and our words can either fill them or they dump them. And it's a lot easier to dump a, dump a bucket than it is to fill it. And when we fill other people's buckets, when their buckets are full, they are likely going to fill ours as well. And so wise and gracious words, in other words, are contagious. The lips of the fool, in contrast, consume him, says Solomon. The idea is that a person... Is the, is the person who cannot stop talking themselves out of the hole they have dug. So they resort to evil madness. Now this is the passage that has really been working me over this past week. So picture this scene, if you will. This, this may seem alien and foreign to you, so, so forgive me if, if this isn't the case, if I'm the only one. But picture this scene. You're in an argument. You're hurt. And so you respond by saying something that is really wrong, really incoherent, and really insulting. And you know it. As soon as you say it, as soon as the words leave your mouth, you know, I should not have said that. But you don't want to own up to it, because if you do, then it means that you're sort of conceding that they were right to hurt you in the first place. So rather than owning up to it and recognizing that you were wrong and apologizing, you try to talk your way out of the conundrum. You try to talk your way out, so you explain. No, what I really meant was, and then you re-explain, and then you re-explain, and then you qualify, and then you dig your heels in, and then somehow you end up saying it stronger, and you say it meaner, and by the end of the conversation, what began as something very small has grown into this massive, hairy beast. That's folly. A fool multiplies words. Though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him, the toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. The only way out, the only way out of the hole he dug for himself is humility. But he is prideful. He is a prideful fool and cannot humble himself, and therefore therefore will not find his way to the city. Now that reference to the city, ancient commentators Uh, most ancient commentators read that as a reference to the celestial city, to heaven, that a fool cannot find his way to heaven. This kind of fool, a sinful, stubborn fool, cannot find his way to heaven because he does not have the fear of the Lord. I think there's, there's wisdom there for us. This kind of thing, again, is not a personality quirk. We're talking about sin. 
Now, before we look at verses 16 through 20, I think we would be doing ourselves a tremendous disservice if we fail to apply all of these verses to two incredibly important areas of speech, social media and gossip. Now, when it comes to social media, as your pastor, let me warn you, let me warn you with something. Now, I want you to receive this with all the full weight of of any sort of pastoral influence I can muster. The cesspool of these platforms has desensitized you more than you think they have. I'm going to say that without any qualification. I am absolutely confident. The cesspool of social media has desensitized you more than you think it has. What constitutes as acceptable, dignified speech in that space is totally different than what constitutes as dignified, acceptable speech in the lobby out here, or in your homes, or at community group, or at the office, etc. And I say this to our shame, brothers and sisters. Paul strictly commands us to not let corrupt speech out of our lips, and we are fooling ourselves if we don't think that that applies also to our fingertips. Now, I've been gone, I was gone from social media for a couple of years, and I returned recently, and I have to tell you, friends, it has been downright depressing. I have seen, since my return, Christian pastors and leaders blatantly disregard the biblical qualification that elders must not be quarrelsome. That's all some pastors do on social media, is be quarrelsome. I have seen Christians... I have seen Christians share vile memes and posts saying things online they would never say to their fellow church members in person. I've seen Christians and pastors and church leaders multiply self-aggrandizing and self-congratulating words that bespeak a self-obsession, a pure, undiluted attempt to be praised or pitied, which is the same thing, by the way. Now, if we're grading on a curve, comparing ourselves to others online, it will be easy for us to excuse our presence as tame. And this isn't isn't me talking to other people. This is me too, brothers and sisters. I say this to our shame. If we're grading on a curve, we will always excuse our, our presence on social media as tame. But instead, we need to view our online speech against the Scriptures. And in the scriptures, we see words like this from Jesus. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for every careless word they speak or tweet. That's my translation there. Now, we often think about our online chatter as uh, in the same category as like one-off conversations. So you're sort of having, you're, you're, you're talking with your spouse, you're just trying to work things out sort of in the process, and you talk about your... You're just letting, letting your speech just kind of roam freely. We, we often think about our online chatter in that way, but I think we should view our online speech more like published words, like in a book. Now, I know not all of us here aspire to writing books, but even if you don't, you can imagine the kind of scrutiny that is required to write books, right? Even if you're, you're, you're don't, you don't want to write books, you can imagine the kind of scrutiny that's required to publish something with your name on it. you got to ask questions like, am I prepared to, to be quoted on this? Have I said it the way that I want to? Can I petition God's blessing for these words? 
I think we should view our online speech with that kind of scrutiny. This passage also speaks loudly about gossip. Foolish speech speaks loudly about gossip. Friends, the dark delight that we have in discussing others' downfall is wicked. It's an evil hunger that is fed with foolish words. It is a sin that is just as severe as any other, especially within the church. It's a deadly sin because it functions like muscular dystrophy. It eats away at the muscles in the body of Christ and makes it weak and vulnerable. That's what gossip does. I cannot emphasize this enough. Gossip is evil. And if you're not sure if a conversation is beginning to verge into the area of gossip, let me give you a tip. You should go ahead and err on the side of caution and assume that it is, and then be that awkward person that confesses it and steers the conversation away. Turn the lights on, so to speak. Pump the brakes. Be that awkward person and say, hey, listen, I'm sorry for any way that I have fed into this, but it seems to me like this conversation is now verging into gossip, and I think we should stop talking about this. And it will be incredibly awkward, but go ahead and do that. And if this is a sin that the Lord is convicting you of right now, can I just suggest that you actually need to confess it? Don't just determine to do differently right now. Actually go out of your way to apologize to the people that you have indulged in this sin with. Because when you did, you thereby invited them to indulge with you. Go ahead and change the tone of the relationship. Go ahead and and talk to that person so that The the tone of the whole relationship is changed so that any time you or they are tempted to verge into gossip in the future, this awkward conversation and confession is burned into your thoughts to make you check yourselves. So you say, I remember the last time we gossiped together, we had to apologize afterwards and it was so awkward. I don't wanna have to go through that again. So friends, let us run from all kinds of foolish speech in our homes, in our relationships and online. Verse 16, let's finish this passage together. Solomon says, Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth, the roof sinks in and through idolence, the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter and wine gladdens the heart, gladdens life and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom, curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your vice, vo- voice and some winged creature tell the matter. So this chapter ends with further wisdom regarding specifically kings and their influence on a land. A foolish king, says Solomon, is a disaster for the land that he governs, and a wise king is a great blessing to that land. The higher the authority, the higher the stakes. This is an irreducible principle of life, and I think few have said it better than Uncle Ben from Spider-Man. You guys know the quote I'm referring to? With great power comes great responsibility, right? This is an irreducible principle. Foolishness and sin always have a ripple effect for everyone. But the greater the authority, the more the influence, the more the power, the further those ripple effects extend. So a child who is sinful is affecting the home. A child who brings his sin into the home is affecting the home. 
but not nearly as severely as when a mother or wife is sinful. Her sin affects the home more than the child's sin affects the home. And whether they realize it or not, a husband and father's sinfulness has a far greater impact on the home than anyone else in the home. That is inescapable. Your sin, dads, husbands, has a greater impact on the home than anyone else in the home. You can't get away from that. That is an irreducible principle. Likewise, when a member of the church breaks his marriage vows, the whole body is affected. Okay, that's going to affect the whole body, but not nearly as affected as when a pastor breaks his marriage vows. That will send shockwaves through the church in a way that it's just not the same for someone who doesn't have that kind of authority. The higher the authority, the higher the stakes. And so when a king is a fool, it is disastrous for the whole land because his influence stretches far. But when a king is wise, it blesses the whole land for the exact same reason, because his influence stretches far. Now, it's important to note that the folly and wisdom here is all about fittingness. What do I mean by that? I mean that God has created the world the way that he has created it, and we must live in it. There is a nature to everything. There is a telos. There is a a right way of doing everything, including wine, laughter, money, authority. All of these things have natures. And so it is unnatural. It is It is unfitting, it is foolish, it's against the nature of things when a king uh, drinks feasts and drinks wine in the morning in a spirit of pure indulgence. When a king is lazy and ignoble and childish, it goes against the nature of how kings are supposed to function when he behaves that way. But on the other hand, it is natural, it is fitting, it goes with the grain of creation When a king conducts himself with nobility and hardworking diligence to drink and feast at the proper times. So wisdom begins with the fear of the Lord. It knows that God has created everything in its proper place and it tries, it knows that to try to impose our wishes upon nature is folly. We're supposed to go with the grain of creation. Now I can't think of a better example of a true kingly authority in literature than the example of King Loon in C.S. Lewis's Narnian classic, The Horse and His Boy. In this story, King Loon, he's a, he's a king of a land called Archenland, and he finds his long-lost son named Kor, who is the heir to his throne. Now, Kor has a twin brother that came right after him. His brother is Korin. So this, is, this could get confusing, so stay with me. Kor is the heir... Corin is his twin brother who's not going to be the king, but Cor would much rather Corin be king. After all, he's just showed up. He doesn't know anything about this kingdom. He's not, he doesn't know anything about the rules or anything like that. He doesn't want to be king, but he has this very fruitful conversation with his father, King Loon. So let me share with you this conversation and listen to the wisdom of King Loon. Cor says, but father, couldn't you make whichever you like to be the next king? No, said King Loon, the king's under the law, for it's the law makes him a king. Hast no power, no more power to start away from thy crown than any sentry from his post. 
For this is what it means to be a king, to be the first in every desperate attack and last in every desperate retreat. And when there's hunger in the land, as must be now and then in bad years, to wear finer clothes and laugh louder over a scantier meal than any man in your land. That's wisdom. That's kingly authority, to be the first in, the last out, and the one laughing loudest. Now, when a king or authority isn't wise in this way, it is appropriate for us to lament that fact. That's what Solomon just does here. He says, woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, when your king is foolish. And so it's appropriate for us to lament that fact. It's even appropriate when... when uh, occasionally, when the time is right, for us to criticize them. But we must not maliciously curse an authority. We must not do that. That is a profoundly unchristian thing to do. That includes privately. That includes publicly. That even includes chants. So if you're at a sporting event and a chant breaks out, cursing an authority even if that chant is undercover. Do you know what I'm referring to? Don't join in. Do not join in. That is a profoundly unchristian thing to do. Let us have nothing to do with that kind of vile nonsense. Pursue wisdom. So, my first pastoral charge in closing is therefore short and straightforward. Get wisdom. Pursue wisdom. This is not something that we can be passive in, brothers and sisters. You're not, you aren't just automatically made wise. You are shaped into wisdom. It is a painful process that involves the pursuit of humility, that, in, that involves your pride constantly being killed. Let it die. Pursue wisdom. We are born foolish and made wise as we are continually shaped by God's wisdom. My second pastoral charge related to the first is to begin with Christ. Get wisdom and begin with Christ, who is wisdom incarnate. Listen, there is, no, there is no becoming truly wise, in the biblical sense of that word, without becoming Christ-like and vice versa. The foolish but yet Christ-like person is a contradiction of terms. You can't do that. You can't be foolish in this biblical sense and also Christ-like at the same time. Which means, when we read about Lady Wisdom... In Proverbs 8 or Proverbs 9, calling out into the streets, inviting fools to come into her home to get wisdom, to sit at her table, to feast on her bread and her wine and to be taught by her. When we read about Lady Wisdom calling out in the streets, we are actually hearing the invitation of Christ himself. And when we heed his invitation, he says, Come to me, all who are weak and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. When we heed his invitation and we come to him, we are heeding the invitation of Lady Wisdom to come into her house to be fed with her bread and her wine. Therefore, friends, come to Christ. Here is the good news. Here is the, the doorway into true wisdom. It is the gospel that the triune God has acted to redeem us from our folly that the Son of God became man and thereby, like the wise poor man in Ecclesiastes 9, He saved us in absolute humility. He translates divine, incomprehensible wisdom for us so that we can see it and become it. He, he, he gives us the freedom to be humble. 
We can be totally humbled. We can be totally broken, which is the path to true wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So we don't have to worry about uh, uh, building ourselves up, justifying ourselves. That, that sort of pride that keeps us from humility. We don't have to hold on to that. We can let it go because the worst and best thing about us has been said by Christ on the cross. The worst thing about us has been said on the cross. That your sin is so vile that only the blood of the, the God-man can atone for your sin. That's the worst thing that has ever been said about you. The best thing has also been said about you right there. That you are so loved that the blood of the God-man has been shed for you. So we can be humble. We can be humble. He took all of our folly upon himself and suffered the consequences of it so that we don't have to. And then by the power of his spirit, he makes us wise. He, God's wisdom, by the power of his spirit, makes us like himself. The triune God shapes us into the image of true, capital W, wisdom. To be brought into Christ, in other words, is to be made wise. Therefore, friends, look to Jesus. Behold him and worship him and follow him and adore him. Obey his word. Heed his invitation. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 3 and 4 that the light of the knowledge of the glory of God is found in the face of Jesus Christ. And that light shines everywhere in the scriptures, including the Old Testament, including Ecclesiastes. And when we behold his face, we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. So come to Jesus. That's the charge. If you're a Christian and if you are not, the charge is the same. Come to Christ. Accept his invitation to take your sinful folly upon himself and to make you wise. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your free invitation. May we, by your spirit, heed it eagerly. We ask that you prepare our hearts now to, cons- to commune with you at your table. Having nourished us with the gospel in the word, nourish us now with the gospel in this meal. We humbly ask for our good to the glory of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Amaze KC, located in Kansas City. For more information about Amaze KC, please visit us online at www.amazekc.com.